In this week's Grit, we are joined by actor and podcaster Daniel Stewart. We talk about growing up amongst acting royalty, US versus British actor training, the future of the arts, and the new season of his podcast, The Foxhole Companion, a compelling history of World War II cinema. Okay, so we're going to jump over to the Cotswolds in England to talk to actor Dan Stewart. Hi, Dan. How are you? Hi, John. I'm very well. So, Dan, I wanted to catch up with you today because, you know, as we explore things with Grit, we're talking to people in so many different roles. And I think the role of actor is 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 one of mystery on many senses and then overexposed in others <laughs> about the behind scenes. So, It'd be really great to hear your perspectives on what is the role of an actor, what is the essence of an actor for you? Well, uh, mystery is a very good word to use because um, it's still mysterious to me. I'm not sure I've actually (laughs) worked out the answer to that. Boy, what is an actor to me? Well, I grew up in the theatre, if you like. Both my parents were in the business. My dad's an actor and my mum was a dancer and choreographer. Right. And I sort and I sort of didn't know any other world, to be honest. Mm. So, you know, my parents' dinner parties now are a who's who of the British theatre aristocracy. Although at the time when I was um, you know, a young boy, uh, they were all just jobbing actors much like I am now. Yeah. And I so I consequently I didn't really know any different. And I've spent half my life in the States. I, I studied in the States. I went to drama school in the States. Right. And so I have sort of adopted both countries' attitude towards acting. Right. And the reason I went to the States is that well, for many reasons, but I was all set to go to drama school in England, but I sort of felt like I knew exactly what I was going to get at a British drama school. And I knew what sort of actor I'd be when I left. And right about the point that I was doing my drama school auditions, I saw um, Steppenwolf Theatre Company, which is a famous Chicago theatre company, which... uh, Gary uh, Sinise? Gary Sinise, John Malkovich, those guys are all sort of founding members of. And they did a production of Grapes of Wrath that, came to London and I saw that and I was absolutely stunned by the performances I saw. And this was, you know, even though we all go to the movies and we see American actors all the time, American stage actors are a sort of breed apart. And I saw them doing things that I'd never seen English actors do. And I I sort of said to myself, I'd quite fancy learning that. So long story short, I trained there, lived there, worked there for many years and American actors take their profession incredibly seriously and they're very committed they the training never stops for them yeah they love doing classes it doesn't matter what sort of class it is but even after they are you know established and working and you know have a career they they still do they still work on themselves and work on their art and work on their creativity and and explore different methods of of performance and storytelling and the english actors sort of <laughs> from my experience of many years here too yeah and and working at the national theater and the royal shakespeare company we very much clock in and clock out we take it we, we're much more glib about it i think and and there's a certain how best to say this? 
there's a certain attitude of British actors, certainly of my generation and older, where we were considered by society as outsiders. In today's world of reality TV and everyone wants their 15 minutes of fame and everyone wants to be a movie star, and our theatres are filled with people who were on a reality TV show and that's what they, you know, that's how they got in. It's a little different, but certainly when I was training and my parents were working, the British theatre was considered to be populated by maniacs and lunatics and and it was the sort of career that parents would advise their children not to go into yes yeah and and so we have quite an irreverent view of it and i've seen i've worked with many very famous and established older actors and and their work on the stage is consummate and brilliant and their focus is 100% but outside of that it's it's just a job that you clock in for you know it's at 7 p.m. and 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 it, you're desperate to get in the bar by before it closes it's funny that you say that because I, as you said that i was sort of thinking i i myself kind of had was was very much involved in amdram kind of as a teenager and stuff and there was that kind of very flippantness of of theater and then later it mm. later on in life working with a lot of screen actors and and interviewing uh actors for film premieres and stuff and mm. the the way in which a, a a uk theater actor talks very flippantly and and as you say that the the pain of a screen actor talking about their art used to be very kind of twisty turning and convoluted and yeah, yeah so I, I yeah i can hear that yeah you know there's that famous anecdote isn't there i i don't know whether it's urban myth or not but i love to believe it that when when they were filming marathon man dustin hoffman and uh, Laurence olivier didn't really see eye to eye yeah. in terms of their approach to their craft and hoffman famously you know very method orientated would immerse himself in the role and solari just showed up and did his <laughs> did his thing the final scene those of you your listeners who know marathon man which is a fabulous film by yeah. the way it ends in i mean dustin hoffman's character has just been brutalized his brother's been murdered the fabulous roy schneider uh he's had his teeth drilled by this psychotic nazi dentist and tortured and and brutalized and uh dustin hoffman showed up on the set and he had really put himself through hell god knows what he'd done to himself he'd been awake for nights and beaten himself up and rolled around in the dirt and and so larry famously looked at him and said why don't you try acting dear boy <laughs> yes <laughs> i think that pretty much sums up the differences between the american approach to our craft and and the british one and i and i sort of have a healthy dose of both i love the american sort of desire to learn and grow and um expand their vision as a creator as an artist and at the same time i do kind of love that cynical you know show up don't bump into the furniture sort of style of british acting <laughs> Yes, and it, and do do you find as well that it, the I always found like stage actors were so different to screen actors, and I know those worlds merge so much more than they that they did. But mm. is is there a different approach as an actor that you have to take in 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 the way that you approach those two things, and it does does it affect your style or? That's a very good question, John. It's interesting because I think ultimately. The result is the same. Right. You either are portraying somebody that the audience, whether through the screen or live in the theatre, believe in and connect to, or they don't. 
yeah. your method of getting them there is sort of irrelevant, I guess, in the end. What's important is that you are creating a story that is believable um, with characters that are believable. So that's, yeah, it's an interesting question. Process it, process is so much to an American actor. Yeah. And I think you will find countless interviews, countless interviews with American actors, both. Well, it's and again, you see there's a difference. British actors tend to do whatever pays the rent and American actors sort of say, well, I'm a screen actor, I'm a TV actor, I'm a stage actor. And, and that's sort of what they do. Yeah. The, the, there isn't that same crossover in British British uh, theatre and film, which has been, you know, historical. I mean, L Laurence Olivier was a, a matinee idol movie star in the States when he was still basically, you know, running a theatre company in Bristol. Yeah. Here in the here in the UK. So it is different. Um, but I would imagine whether you're Ian McKellen or Ryan Reynolds, your your objective is pretty much the same, and that is to create a believable three-dimensional character who responds and reacts to their environment in a in a believable way. Mm. And and do, do you find, um, I suppose, on that topic, because one, one of the things I used to find about British acting, particularly from stage to screen, is that sense of sometimes being a little bit too big for the screen. And therefore, mm. it is it is it a slightly different process in, in terms of physicality and projection and so forth? Mm. Because, because how and how does that feel as an actor, those two different dynamics of playing to an audience and playing to a camera? It is hugely different. And the two techniques are hugely different. Mm. I have found in general that British actors who have trained for the stage and had a career on the stage find it easier to make the adjustment to scaling down their performance, right. mi miniaturizing it, if you like, for the film camera mm. where your performance, uh, and, and every day more and more so. I mean, the difference between the film acting technique from when I trained to today is even hugely different. Um, the the incredible um, growth and development of the of sound technology means that as a as a as a film actor you can literally speak in a whisper and um, uh, me whispering coincided with my dog barking but um, uh, you your performance can be so tiny that the camera can be right up your nose in the tightest of close ups and. Uh, it's all about what's going on in the eyes, which is why I was comparing, not comparing the two, but saying the, uh, ultimately the result is the same, is you have to be believable. Yeah. It's just where you have to believe, be believable. It, on the stage, you have to be believable in row Z of the criterion yeah. in the West End, whereas in film, it's, it's all in the eyes. There has to be an inner engine. There has to be some kind of life 
inside. You can't just show up and say the lines and not bump into the furniture. And consequently, because British actors are so good at that, at inhabiting a character, that it is just a case of making it smaller. Now, the reverse of that is I have worked with people who have tried to make the jump from screen to stage, and especially those big theatres of Broadway and the West yeah, End, yeah, yeah. you know, 1,500 seats, 1,200 seat theatres, where they can't be heard beyond the third row. And, and that is training. That yeah. is years and years of training your voice. Now, you can train your voice to be quiet, having trained it to be loud, Yeah, that's easy. Suddenly trying to be heard in Rosette is a very, very different, and, and not just heard, but seen. And I use that in the most expansive way possible. Seen as in your character has to be understandable and uh, believable 200 feet away yeah. to audiences at the back of the circle. So it is, it, it's, it's tricky. And I think English actors have a better time of it. And I think that's why you see more British actors on Broadway than you do American film actors in the West End. Now, yeah. it does happen, yeah. but it's less common, I think. Mm -hmm. And it, t it tends to be a promoter getting for getting attention sometimes rather yeah. than necessarily, yeah. I, I, I won't name names, but it does work in this country as well i did um i did a play that was that's very very rarely done um alexander solzhenitsyn the great russian novelist mm -hmm. wrote a play about the russian gulag and i did a production of that at southwark playhouse in london and the lead was a very young actress who was untrained but had was quite well known in the TV world, and I'm not going to name names. Yeah, yeah. She dropped out about two days before opening. She didn't even make it to the final dress, I think, because she was so... She was in a cast full of very well-known stage actors, and she, I think she was so intimidated by it, rather than getting more expansive, rather than getting louder, rather than going, oh, I see what's happening with these actors. They're yeah. filling the room she got smaller and smaller and smaller. And the director, you know, in the theater was saying, and it wasn't a large theater either, this, yeah. which I, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And then the next day she just didn't show up. Oh, crumbs. I know. Yeah. So I would also say if it's your, if you've grown up in the theater and that's your world, your first minutes, seconds walking onto a film set can equally be incredibly intimidating. Yeah. Because it is such an astonishingly different medium. Yes. And you're dealing with, rather than a live audience, you have 50, 60, depending on the, you know, mm. whether it's TV or film, sometimes more technical crew standing around looking at you like, okay, we're all here to film and record you. Yes. Go. Only in the most, you know, highest levels of uh, enlightened directors do you get a rehearsal. Yes. Oftentimes it's like, let's block it so the camera knows where you are with script in hand. Now go do it. And maybe you get three or four takes. It's it's scary. No. And I, I was I was sort of wondering what that that does to the psychology for an act. I mean, I when I'm training uh, uh, sort of film directors or, or, or video directors, Mm. I try and always encourage them that they should they should experience being an actor, even if they can't act. They should experience what it's like to mm. be, because 
quite often when you're when you're training people for the start, they kind of start treating actors like meat puppets. And mm. and I, I I and conversely, you've got all these people around staring at you, but they're not they're not really staring at you for a performance. They're sort of staring at you whilst doing their job. And I just wonder mm. like that's a strange thing. And and you do see these occurrences where people blow up and people always say, Oh, what a diva. But I kind of have a lot of sympathy for that because if somebody's walking around in your eyeline, when you're doing a performance, that must be really Mm. difficult. So I just want, what what is it like with all of that going on around you? John, I, I, I I have a suspicion. I know exactly what famous audio. Yes. You're (laughs) you're talking about. I'm not going to name names. No, it's really interesting. Funnily enough, where I trained, and, and and this was sort of a happy accident for me because the the conservatory school I trained at in the states in California, California Institute of the Arts, right. a, a, a conservatory founded by Disney, yes, uh, Roy O. Disney, yes, not the not brother Walt, yeah. to Walt, yeah. possibly one of the most famous animation schools in the world. Yeah. Uh, if if you look at um, the millions of names that follow a Disney or a um, a Pixar film, ten out of ten, those are all CalArts yeah. animation students. And in fact, Pixar was founded. Yeah. Those guys, the guys who founded Pixar, were in my year. Right. Um, wow. There was also a very very good film school that at that time the resident film director was the brilliant Alexander McKendrick, Sandy oh, McKendrick, yes. yeah, yeah, for the yeah. students, an absolute terrifying maniac of a completely different generation and world of filmmaking. But he insisted that his film directors take acting classes. He thought it was absolutely crucial that a film director understand as best as possible the craft of acting from the actor's side in order to do what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree with you. I think that it is important that film directors understand that. However, having spent the time that I have in Los Angeles, there's a whole nother force at work here. And that is certainly in television as well, especially episodic television, where you have a, a time limit. Yeah. You know, we, we've, we've heard these stories about Coppola mortgaging his, <laughs> double mortgaging his yeah. house in order to get Apocalypse Now finished because Brando showed up and didn't know his words and was 200 pounds heavier than he should have been. All that kind of madness. That is a very much in the film world. In television, you just that just doesn't happen. No. You've got a schedule. They've got a week to film this episode at best. Yeah. Sometimes you're doing daily crazy nonsense where you're doing an episode a day certainly in the soap operas yeah there's just no there's no time for that yeah so what you'll find there is that directors of tv who are on a schedule really couldn't give a crap whether or not your process is being honored (laughs) yeah just and it's in oh god i mean you have to know that going into that situation you can't be doing law and order for instance, which has probably had hundreds and hundreds of episodes by now, and they've got 15 minutes at this location before they have to, like, guerrilla filmmaking go to the next location in the middle of Manhattan. You can't be like, you know, could I get another couple of takes in that? I really wasn't feeling it. They'll just look at you like you're an insane human being and probably go, no, you can't. 
Yeah. Get off my set. You're done. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, a wrap. Yeah. yeah. You have to depend on your own homework in those situations. If you don't show up prepared, there's no time or space for you to discover it. No. No. That, that, that's you've got to be ready to go when the director says action. And if you're not, you'll not work again. I mean, that sort of reputation gets out. So yeah, that's very different. But I think with you'll hear this again and again with film directors that actors will describe them as an actor's director. And that basically a director who understands actors, who appreciates their process, who wants to help them get the best performance in whatever means possible. Um, and they are a rarity, even in Hollywood, in, in, in the high-budget filmmaking. There's still, whether you know you like it or not, whether Christopher Nolan wants to do the 400th take, there'll be a man in a suit who's from the studio boss's office looking at his watch going, mm, I don't think you are doing another take. I think you're moving on. Yeah. So, yeah, it's bonkers. It's a crazy world. It really is. And and do you, do you, do you find, like, um, with direct, is there sometimes a preoccupation or, 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 or fixation on the visual rather than than what's going on or does it vary quite a lot because I, I i've worked mm. with very visual directors and i'm like why don't you just become a cinematographer <laughs> because mm. you, because i think directing has another layer to it that has to coordinate people do, do you find there's a lot of difference between the kind of directors you work with it does mm. well listen if you take if you take a director like vim vendors let's say yeah. yeah if you turn the sound down and remove the subtitles there's no way you wouldn't know a vim vendors film i mean yeah. he's prolific the amount yeah. of work he's done as an actor, you would sort of kill to work with a director like that because the performances he gets from his actors are so beautiful and so detailed and so filled. Yeah. Whilst at the same time, he must have his other eye on this incredibly specific visual story that he's telling. Because, yeah. you know, we have to, as actors, we have to remember that what comes out of our mouth in film is you know, 1% of the story, the camera tells the story. Mm. Sandy McKendrick used to tell us this at CalArts all the time. L let the camera tell the story. Don't write a one-page scene if you can let the camera do it in 30 seconds, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I would probably hazard a guess that the greatest visual directors, the directors who are well known for their very recognizable framing and art design are probably really good actor directors as well. Yeah. I'm thinking of, um, oh, see now you've, you've caught me late at night and uh, <laughs> well, late at night. It's 7.30. But that's late for us. <laughs> We're at that age now. Come on, the wonderful American director, the the, the Grand Budapest Hotel and oh, um, West Bottle Ander Rocket. Wes Anderson. And, where, Wes Anderson. Yeah. Now, I, there, are, there are very few directors who have the, that kind of a visual eye that he does. And again, a, a Wes Anderson film is immediately recognizable. Yeah. And then you look at the sort of actors that he repeatedly works with. Now, if you're an actor, you don't work with a director again if you don't particularly enjoy the process. Hmm. And then you look at the actors who do work with him again and again and again, and you go, that's not a coincidence. Yeah. You know, Bill Murray's not agreeing to work with, with Wes Anderson because it's Tuesday. He's doing it because 
he very rarely works with anybody unless he is inspired by them and and and, and, yeah. and wants to tell that story. I would be more worried about working with, and you see, this is what we were talking about before. I'm going to get in trouble now, and now I'll never work with them. But the um... <laughs> Bay. Oh, Michael uh, Bay. Michael yeah, Bay. Yeah, yeah. I've got to be honest with you. I doubt he's saying to people, you know what? We've done 68 takes. I'm really close to getting this. Just, you know what? Let's just have a little chat off off the side of the camera here and discuss exactly how this explosion makes you feel. That's going to be an entirely different realm of filmmaking right there. And well, God, the stories were in the biz were were rampant about the actors who did the what are now called the Star Wars prequels with George Lucas. Oh God, yeah, yeah. Who claimed they just had no idea what was going on? They were in front of a green screen, you know, most of the time, with a mad George Lucas going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So there's this whole planet behind you, and there's stuff happening, and 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 that's why those. I personally, and God, now I'll never work for Star Wars. That's why I think those prequels ultimately fail from an actor's perspective is because the storytelling is all special effects. Yeah, it, it's it's not realising the, the, the characters are what's driving it as opposed to the spectacle. Which is crazy because the whole wonderful depth of, of episode four, Star Wars, is because of what those actors brought to it and the storytelling yeah. and your investment as an audience member in those actors and those characters was supreme. And the fact that there was brilliant space shootouts and, you know, Death Stars and things just made it even better. And somewhere along the lines, George Lucas forgot that part of storytelling and the whole technical side took over. And, you know, I should say I've been on some sets, John, where the technical side is huge. Um, uh, for instance, the X-Men sets. Yeah. What, what we call in today's world Video Village, which tends to be a little corner of the set filled with monitors and lots of people you never really know who they are or what their names are, yeah. who are just glued to keyboards and, yeah. and monitors. On a franchise like that, Video Village is like Video City. I mean, you're talking hundreds of people in tent after tent after tent glued to monitors who are doing myriad things that an actor has no control over or understanding of yeah um that is a huge part of the storytelling it's really odd it's it's kind of bonkers that. Well, all the all these layers that bring it all together is getting more and more complicated and I, I do wonder sometimes whether and i do wonder sometimes if particularly after covid whether we'll start leaning like we need some more human stories like just just raw humans being together rather than all this fantastical stuff because because i think we crave humanity a bit more at the moment than we have done maybe in the last yeah. year well i think there's an interesting thing going on and it will be really it'll be really cool to see how this plays out because on one hand with covid you're seeing actors do voiceovers for um, not just animation, but like computer-driven uh, characters. Yeah. Uh, so characters that are totally two-dimensional. They're created by a by a computer program, and you do the the voiceover for. Now, some people are especially good at that. Um, others, you can just see right through it and go, "This is boring and as hell, and I'm not interested in this." Um, the good side of that are things like that brilliant series Mandalorian, where, I mean, 
kudos to Pedro Pedro Pascal who managed to pull off a brilliantly moving performance with a helmet on. Yeah, where yeah. You couldn't even see his face. There's an acting challenge for you. Spend spend two seasons acting with no one seeing your face, and he pulled it off. It was amazing. But they had pulled together a bunch of directors there that were really brilliant and were keyed into storytelling in its most primal form. And then on the other side, you see this stuff where you're just like, God, this is is the death of our art here. Having said that, also because of COVID, you're starting to see these really stripped-down film and TV production where you have minimal cast, minimal crew, Still trying to tell a story visually. And I'm thinking um, of a Netflix film that I saw very recently that caused quite a bit of a stir here, probably more than the creators imagined would happen, uh, of a film called The Dig about the – it was on a Netflix film. I heard of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, With Ray Fiennes and uh, about the the discovery of the Sutton Who – Burial yeah, ship yeah. in uh, East Anglia, your neck of the woods. Yeah, I know, uh, it, I know it well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, that was just fabulous storytelling, and its response from the people watching it. Because you know, everyone's got a Netflix account now that there's COVID. Because yeah. what are you going to do? You're not going to go to the movie theater. The response was so interesting because so many people on Twitter and you know all the social media being like, "What a brilliant." film that was and it was really simple it's just people interacting it's just people talking to each other it's a really simple story and it's just created so carefully and with such attention and with such uh love that you go hmm yeah, if the, if people are still able to make this, then we're we're doing okay. Yeah, and I I think this reflective period makes people want to know human stories because we've been sort of devoid of the human interaction. So maybe we want yeah. to start seeing 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 that a bit more. In the same way as after World War Two, you started seeing a whole different kind of film coming out to pre-war. So so you're absolutely right, John. I'd not thought of it that way, and I think God, yeah, the human desire to connect. And to tell stories, which must have been happening for 5,000 years of people sitting around a fire after the hunt and, you know, discussing the day is primal, isn't it? It's a sort of really vital part of who we are is this storytelling. And maybe you're right, because, you know, I've said this on on our podcast. um, We've talked about this explosion of filmmaking that happened both in Britain and America post-war that was a complete rejection of that old school f- storytelling and yeah. gave gave birth to the likes of Elia Kazan and Brando and and um, James Dean and and those sort of method actors where the process and the ability to tell a more convincing story became everything and it had to be driven by the second world war it had to be driven by the sort of torture and torment that everyone went through and they wanted to be like who are we as human beings and i would i i think you're absolutely right john i wouldn't be surprised at all if we do see some really interesting creativity come from this as people try and explore a different way to tell stories you know and and i think i mean even like when you when you see the the variance on like um, playing around with like the zoom experience, you know, like everybody was talking about staged and, and, and I, I was really worried about, it. I thought, Oh, it's going to be one of those sort of 
inner joke lovey things but actually mm. it was quite 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 an effective way of just watching watching it didn't even matter that they were actors it, it could have it could have easily worked as as a, a drama of people playing out their own issues and, and it, it was very captivating and incredibly simple so I, I i just got that kind of feeling that there's a a, a drive for authenticity as well mm. of experience mm. I think you're I think you're absolutely spot on there John because if we look at the last 10 years of what commercial companies have been churning out yeah. and the 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 explosion of reality TV and watching just regular people do stupid things like let's what's the most recent one ever let's get naked and get married after one date where we were yes. naked <laughs> it's like we're, they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel now. And I wouldn't be surprised if we as human beings and our desire for storytelling and our desire to be transported somewhere else, it, after COVID, we're going to be just about sick of reality as we anybody could be. Much like I imagine the world was after the Second World War. Right, we've done yeah. that. That's, yeah. that's, that's enough reality for now. Please take me somewhere else. And I wonder if that that might actually be a really healthy thing. It's going to be an interesting place to explore, and I think like the way the way culture and art follows that, and you know, it, it's been very sad. And I, I wonder how 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 you've experienced that, like with with the close down of so much culture. How has that affected the job as an actor? Mm. Because you know, I, I watched numerous friends of mine just suddenly have West End runs cancelled overnight, mm. and and all sorts. So. How how has that been within the community, I guess? It's been really, really hard, John. Mm. Listen, our industry is one which is rife with unemployment. Yeah. As, as you know, a member of all the acting unions you can jo join, I, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something, it's something insane, like 89% of our industry in the UK is unemployed at any given time. It's not great. Yeah. Uh, if you if if you're looking at making a fortune, this is not the business for you. And it's it's been really hard. But what I think has been really surprising is not that it hasn't been hard for us because we've got the double whammy here in England. Is we've got the the double whammy of COVID and Brexit, which has yeah. pretty much shut down any chance of touring or working in the eu which was a huge part of our industry yeah but i think audiences miss it i think the things like the national theater live stuff that yeah. suddenly started appearing where they started showing recordings of live performances and the sort of reaction that it got and how the figures the number of people who showed up i did as well yeah, yeah, yeah. things that i missed yeah. when it was in the in in the theater and always wanted to see and it is different than sitting inside of a theatre and, and watching it live because that's such a visceral, immediate yeah. experience. I think the audience miss it too. I really do. Yeah. The, the tragedy and the problem is how much of that is going to still exist at the end of all this because so many of British theatres literally work from hand to mouth and it's what you make from the last production that allows the next production to happen that sort of thing even at the highest level even at the subsidized nationally subsidized theaters like the national theater they depend on bums on seats as we say mm. it's it, it will it, it will be 
frightening to see who's left standing at the end of all of this. Because if the National Theatre of Great Britain is putting out tweets saying we've got about two months left and then we're done if we don't get audiences in soon, imagine what the fringe is doing imagine what the off-broadway community is doing these places yeah. that really depend on uh, on a live audience to just pay the rent on their space yeah it's going to be it's going to be tough it really is and it has been incredibly tough and i think all artists depend ultimately on getting hired and telling the stories and um in front of an audience either live or in a movie theater and not being able to do that and I think also, I have to say this, it's my little political dig here. The, no, fact, the fact that you can sit on a 777 with 500 other people breathing the same air for 12 hours on a flight to LA is allowed, is okay, but distant seating inside of a 1,200-seat theatre is not okay, is mental. And yeah. we have, I mean... Our, our, the culture and art in Britain is probably now probably our only export. It's the only thing that is famous. You know, yeah, yeah. people come from all around the world to come to the West End and see our theatre. Um, and the fact that the government's just been like, no, you can't do it, sorry, is is just killing us. What What I also don't understand is, and I should because I'm being simplistic here, I guess, but like... Amazon and Netflix can't exist without culture because that's what they sell in some way, yeah. shape, or form. You know, you're not going to have the talent going into the next big Netflix show if you are not at some grassroots level supporting where it comes from. You know, these act actors don't become superstars. You know, they they have to grow through mm. this process and so forth. And if they're not going to do it through taxation to governments, then they should just do it mm. directly. Oh, agreed. Just, just, just out of their own business sense of otherwise they in because the the, the long tail of that is in a few years' time there isn't it like wh where have all the actors gone where 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 have all the the production designers and so now forth? before I get a million messages on Twitter from lunatics yes. going oh well the government <laughs> gave you a two point one billion pound bailout as I'm quick to point out in all of those that was two point one billion pounds for the entire arts industry. So that included yeah. galleries, cinemas, theatres, um, radio, every form of artistic expression was covered in that bailout. What ended up going to individual yeah. theatre companies was probably barely got them through the month. So, yeah, yeah it, it has to... And you look at countries that successfully subsidise their arts like like France yeah. there is a national pride there is an acknowledgement that our culture is an important part of who we are as people as citizens of our country and britain has been really crap about that you know this whole thing of it's now like almost like a curse word oh you lovies you know you're a lovey this way of dismissing an yeah. entire industry which to be fair brings in a shed load more money than fishing ever does, which is what is front and center of the news these days, uh, because apparently Brexit yeah, yeah. was just about saving the fucking fishing. Oh, there I saw it didn't take very long. <laughs> um, 
It's all right. <laughs> but it does really piss me off because the, 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 the arts, the culture in Britain brings in, I think I saw it somewhere else, the, the fishing industry brings in about 415 million and, 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 and the arts brings in something like 29 billion pounds a year. It's a, it's a huge chunk of GDP, yeah, yeah. It's basically all we do do anymore. We don't make steel anymore. We don't well, yeah. create any kind of industry that is no one else in the world can do. No. It's basically all we've got. And the government has just screwed us over with this. It really has. And what, what's the point of going it alone if you don't protect your culture? That's the bit I don't get. Like, like the whole arguments around Brexit are steeped well, in it, culture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The so-called culture wars, um, the people who claim that, you know, pulling down a statue of a slave trader in Bristol is a culture war are ignoring the fact that their actual living culture that exists today and is an enormous source yes. of revenue for the HMRC coffers is um, this. No, that's the culture war. The culture war is the fact that yeah. our actual culture is ignored and dismissed as being pansy artists who just probably should go and... I mean, the, the, everything you need to know about the government's attitude towards art in this country is when... Uh, which one of the idiots was it in the Tory government? I can't remember now. It wasn't Nick Hancock because he's health. <laughs> but it was one of those. Yeah. Oh, Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak... Oh yes, with his advert. said yes, um, yeah. train train for IT. Oh, that's I've just spent my entire life training and working in an industry, and you've been like do IT instead. It, it, that is where they think we're at. You know that yeah, nobody will miss that. They're just a bunch of actors. Who cares? I suppose another question to that, and this is something that that I think all all artists seem to suffer from when we go through schooling and i'm thinking of, of of myself as an educator in this i come across people all the time who say yeah my parents like they're really concerned i'm going to get a job at the end of this they're really concerned like is this a waste of time is, is it fluffy is it and and i do under I, I i never quite understand how we came up with the narrative that this was either easy <laughs> a kind of uh non like a low level like there seems to just be a narrative that dismisses mm. it and yet we spend, most people spend an inordinate amount of time essentially sitting at the shrine of creativity. Mm. But then when we talk about the people that do it, in the way that we don't dismiss other industries, you know, we, we don't give plumbers a hard time. No, it's it's really interesting, isn't it, John? And, and that is en endemic in this country. And it has a long and fruitful history that people in the arts are somehow just loafers living off the state and messing about not doing anything really important and yet those same people will probably be the ones who point at shakespeare and go this is our greatest you know the world's leading playwright yeah. well who the fuck do they think is doing is saying his words so it, yeah. that yeah that 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 is deeply frustrating but i you know what i always remember it's funny there was a brilliant monty python sketch that never you know it's not up there in the cheese shop or uh, pet shop pantheon of of brilliant python sketches but this one was a really brilliant twist and it and it looked like a real northern like yorkshire working class home with a with a yeah. with an old fella you know in with his shirt sleeves rolled up reading the paper 
and I don't know whether it was Terry Jones as the as the mother, and in comes a fella wearing a suit. I think it was Eric Idle, and and the dad goes, "Oh, hi, here he comes from his fancy little job." And mum goes, oh, don't don't upset him. He's had a hard day at rehearsals. And you suddenly get this whole twist <laughs> that they've done is the son in the nice suit is trying to get into mining. And the guy in the working class miners outfit as, is a playwright for the National Theatre. And this juxtaposition of be like, yes. ooh, tungsten carbine drill. Ooh, aren't you? Get you with your fancy <laughs> words. And what they're making fun of there that is so brilliant is there is historically you know, this attitude of, well, if you're not doing a decent working class job, because especially, it's not true at all anymore, but especially when I was training, acting was still very much an industry filled by the middle classes and and the lower classes especially, because you don't do it for the money. You're not doing it to try and make a fortune. You're doing it because you can't think there's anything else in the world that matters as much, and you must do it to live. And um, yeah, so this idea that, you know, that this guy who looks like very working class with his wife making the tea uh, is actually a, a writer at the National Theatre was a brilliant little twist on this very historical attitude in this country where if you're not doing a right working class job, then you can just get lost because you're just leeching off the state with you with your fancy rehearsals <laughs> and your... And your yeah. and your opening, your Broadway openings, ooh, get you, you're so fancy, is complete nonsense because the entire industry was founded on working class people who just wanted to do nothing else. Now, I say that, and here's the classist in me coming out. Being an actor in Britain has become so ridiculous and become so expensive because basically the city you need to live in is London, which is now one of the most yeah. expensive cities in the world. And when I, when I was a lad... <laughs> When when I was a youngster, you could still get a crappy flat in you know Earl's yeah. Court and and tr- live off actors' wages and be in the city. You can't do that anymore. And we're seeing more and more and more. And not to put them down. Yeah. And God, I hope I never work with them. And they hear this. But the likes of um, Eddie Redmayne and Benedict Cumberbatch, they're all. I knew those names were coming. Yeah. And <laughs> I have the same feeling. I have to say, I think they're both phenomenal actors. But but they do get most of the roles. Well, they seems. do now, yeah. There's like, uh, they, we're all yeah, getting a bit yeah. bored. But more importantly, they're both from Eton. You know, they're both not just public school, but the highest, most upper class levels, almost aristocratic levels of, of, of uh, British class system. And I have a theory about this. And I can tell, and this is horribly classist of me. This is my working class roots coming out. But you can tell by looking at the names in a cast list, especially the double-barreled names, that these are people who probably went to a public school who have basically are able to afford to afford to be as unemployed as actors normally are. Because they have daddy's trust fund keeping them fed and watered and the bills paid. And um, our industry is, you know, the great and mental Stephen Burkoff about five or six years ago was bemoaning on radio the lack of working class influence in our creative arts because 
Oh, for sure. His belief is unless you've really suffered, unless you've really um, known what it's like to not know where the next meal's coming from or not depend on the next job, whether it's a stupid voiceover, a commercial or a, you know, a job at the National Theatre, that or you won't pay your rent. And the crappy bloody jobs we do as actors for most of the time when we're not treading the boards, you don't really have a story to tell. If your entire life experience is comfort and ease, what what what's what story have you got to tell? And I do actually believe that. I believe that if you look at some of the greatest artists we have ever known in our time, they didn't come from aristocracy. This is why I, I object so hugely and vociferously to the people who believe it was the Earl of Oxford who wrote Shakespeare's plays and not Shakespeare, because how could <laughs> this little peasant from rural Stratford-upon-Avon, a, a ho-dunk, hick town in the middle of the country, create anything that was that brilliant? It's almost as though, like, no, you're working class. Know your place. Mm. You're not supposed to be a genius. We're the geniuses. We're the upper classes. We're the ruling classes. And we seem to be filling our industry with people who, to be fair, are the only people who can afford to do it anymore. Well, no, and that that's the problem. I mean, I... When I had an office in London, uh, my the the window to my office backed on to Rada. So I, oh. I used to rate, like this is sort of late late two thousand and ten, two thousand twelve, and kind of looking out the window and watching them kind of do do sword play mm. and so forth. And then I would leave at the front door and quite often bump into um, Ken Loach. <laughs> well, there's a juxtaposition for you. And I was like, have you just been in there? And he would be like, yeah, and I'd, I'd just talk to anyone on the street. And, and I was like, so how are you picking people for your films from the sword play? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just kind of, as you say, the, ju- the juxtaposition of it. And I do, I do like what, where is like the Tim Roth, Gary Oldmans, and the Alan Clark type? Where are they going to come from? Because if if you haven't been around mm. people, it's it's not even like you have to experience everything. You have to just be around it, and like you have to observe human condition mm. to take it on board to inform. It's interesting, you, right? yeah, and and I absolutely agree. And then you go further back even to your O'Tools and your um, Richard Harris and people like that who sound awfully plummy. Because that's what you were taught at the time. You were taught this received pronunciation, as it's described, so that you could get a job on the BBC. But all of yeah. them were working class lads. These are people who were driven to create because of an innate desire and a need and a hunger to tell stories or to create art or to make pictures that move people and tell of a life experience that we all relate to and can understand and if we fill our creative arts with people who have basically not really had to work very hard for it or have sort of had it all fall in their lap what sort of stories are they going to tell i mean you get to this sort of dilemma this question with you know would would van gogh have painted you know the the way he painted if he had been a millionaire would there have been? I mean, this is a guy who never sold a painting in his life, except to his brother. They're now they're now <laughs> going for tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars or pounds, and he never sold a one. What was driving him? What force inside of poor old Vincent 
was was compelling him to paint those pictures in a way that everyone else laughed at him and went, that's fucking nonsense. That's rubbish. All those swirly colours. Yeah. And and we now look at him as one of the most important and brilliant painters of, of all time. It's a dilemma, John, and I don't know what the answer is, but I do have this as a positive. I do think that COVID has been a sort of great leveller. And and when yeah. COVID first started and people started going, oh, the theatres are in trouble, I thought to myself, yes, we they are. But guess what? We live in a country where over the last 2,000 years, we've had some form of artistic expression, expression almost all the time. The first thing to close in London during a plague were the theatres and the brothels. And we're still here. We're still... There are still theatres, you know, the South Bank of London. All the theatres in Elizabethan England were on the South Bank because they were exempt from the rules that the centre of London had, which is why they shared the same street as all the brothels and still do if you go yeah. to Soho. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Soho in the old days. It's not Soho anymore. Yeah. I think that the compulsion to create and the desire to tell stories through any medium is such a primal one for us as a rate as a as an organism and it's particular yeah. to us we don't know of anyone else in the entire universe who has this need to tell stories like we do or to create and i think it is primal yeah. and i think that covid might just be a bit of a leveler for us it might help us re-examine who we are what is important to us? What inspires us? What informs us? What talks to us about our human condition? And 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 yeah. as desperate as it does seem in this country right now for us artists, I wouldn't despair because I think the human need to to have our own experience reflected back at us is such a primal one that it will it will happen again it will rise like a phoenix from the ashes of covid britain and brexit britain and i'm absolutely certain of that because i think there's a there's a compulsion and i just hope we haven't become too cynical and too lazy to want to do that I think it will. And I, I think we are, I mean, you know, you had that first flurry in, in, in the first lockdown where everybody was like, right, I've got to showcase how exactly. creative I am. Yeah. No. It... <laughs> in the, and, and, but that was an innate thing. And then I think that was, that was like your first, I've got to do mm. something. So it's your, 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 your almost immediate innovation of creativity, but then there'll be a process where people just stay on it and then, develop more mm. long form stuff or more 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 considered things well absolutely and look at look at just in the last year since our first lockdown in march of 2020 mm. what has suddenly appeared through social media and the internet and streaming devices it's exactly what i'm saying it's it's you know to to, to paraphrase Jurassic Park, which I can't believe I'm doing, life will find a way. And I think art will find a way and creativity will find a way. I mean, look at the madness that just happened. I don't know whether this made it to Norway. I certainly hope it did. But the 
uh, TikTok like explosion of um, sea shanties. Did you get that? Yes, yes, I heard about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I watched yeah. these grow from a fella in Scotland who was the original one who did this sea shanty, and then another guy goes in America went, I want to put a bass voice into this. And by the end of it, you had dozens of people and musicians contributing to it. And I thought, that is exactly what I'm talking about. We're all locked inside. We're all unable to communicate with each other in the most basic way, face-to-face. But we found ways to do it. And I think, and, and out of everything that's come of COVID, God knows probably science and medicine has, has, is experiencing some kind of incredible growth just in desperate need to fix things. I think that art has, people have found interesting and intriguing ways to express themselves to a larger world that has a wonderful sort of inevitability about it. Whether it's um, somebody who's decided to try and make animation through TikTok. I mean, we now have these mediums that we don't even need to create the medium. It's already done for us. So we got a head start. But, oh, I wonder if I can tell a story like this through that. And I think that's wonderful and powerful and really a positive thing to take into these dark months ahead of us. (laughs) Oh, for sure. And I I think having a pause from the kind of hustle and bustle of essentially capitalism, Mm. it is a moment of reflection. And and usually out of a moment of reflection usually comes creative things absolutely things uh, generally and and i think what what can happen next is the idea of capitalism as far as i remember is that it was only supposed to last for so long and uh, i think like adam smith was saying it was supposed to liberate us from the from from the industrial age so that we had the freedom to be creative so maybe everybody goes actually now we are inventing robots to do stuff and maybe like the robots will run amazon and we'll just buy shit off amazon and amazon will pay 90 percent tax that gives us some money so we can be hmm. artists I, I i mean that, that that's my utopic kind I, of I, think view, it's, I think it's i think it's a brilliant one because how fabulous is it that we have discovered as a human race especially in the capitalist west that oh i don't need to go into the office and wear a suit and tie i can do my job just yeah. as well sitting in my pajamas at home where I can still look after the kids and do their homeschooling and do my job. The capitalist West, despite the best efforts of some of our politicians, hasn't ground to a halt. Yeah, our economy may be tanking, but maybe we are discovering a different... Look, capitalism was dying anyway. It obviously doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The distance between the rich and the poor is becoming feudal now you know it's just it's bonkers where we're at as 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 supposedly the most advanced civilizations on the planet where the poor are poorer than they've ever been and the rich have you know the one percent of the population have something like 70 percent of the wealth on the planet that we're discovering no you know what maybe i don't have to be this you know person who grinds out a five-day week and commutes two hours to get into work because I can't afford to live in the city anymore. Why am I even killing myself doing that? I'll stay at home and do it. And I think that's, and it has given, and this is the whole, people, sociologists talk all the time and anthropologists, 
about the explosion of art in Renaissance Europe. It's not a coincidence that it coincided with a time of huge wealth when people weren't literally scrabbling in the mud and the muck so that they could eat at the end of the day and not die. There was now a society evolved around them where they could go to a shop and buy what they needed to eat because they had enough money because they did whatever they did. And suddenly there was this explosion of art and literature it's not the golden age for nothing. And I'm wondering if we're not on the very, very cusp. Maybe I'm being absolutely pretentious here, but maybe we're on the very, very cusp of another golden age where we refocus our sights and go, we've been murdering ourselves, working ourselves into yeah. an early grave, desperately pursuing this capitalist dream of comfort and ease where we have no time to enjoy our comfort or ease because we're working so hard maybe we all can take a bit of a breath here and and like you say it's brilliant where you've seen people have learned the guitar and people have learned a different language and people have suddenly gone let's make sourdough bread endlessly and endlessly and endlessly yeah yeah, yeah. no but it's it, it's also like go, go, going back to your point about like london rents and so forth becoming mm. ridiculous uh, I don't. I don't know whether the same effect is happening in London, but like twenty five percent of New York has left. Mm. <laughs> so, it and I, I can see like there's got to come a point where even post COVID, somebody looks at the gherkin and go, "Why are we paying high rents for a load of people to sit at yeah. a desk in that? Let's let them work at home." And then suddenly the whole commercial rental market in London collapses. Mm. Open spaces and who goes into those spaces? It's artists. Always the, same way the as, way. As artists went into the breakdown of the of the Docklands and and so forth, or the meatpacking industry in, in 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 New York. And again, I'm being very hopeful. I just I know art always comes into the spaces that are abandoned by mm. industry, and I can see the abandonment of industry because humanity is is vested mm. in creativity and art. It's not vested in money. And, no. and industry really. and and the, the capitalism has tried to you look at the, the 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 skyline of london i'm a londoner i was born in london i grew up in london and the skyline of london where the only two things that really stuck above everything else was the bt tower and yeah. saint paul's cathedral now it's a transformed skyline it's it's i was doing a photo shoot the other day in uh, a building in the city I forget which one it was. Yeah. It was right near Liverpool Street. And I ended up going up to, God knows, the 48th floor or something. And the view, I'd never seen London laid out like this before. And uh, the photo shoot was in a window. And I was just marveling at this city I could suddenly see that I'd never seen before. But there are edifices to a construct that is celebrated purely because it's material. Look at us. Aren't we wealthy? We built this big fucking building but you are absolutely right berlin is a great example of this because i've not been and i long to go it's been a dream of mine to go mm. to berlin but the artistic world of berlin is apparently incredible where all these abandoned buildings especially once the wall came down and these eastern german uh, Eastern Berlin buildings opened up and like you say the people who filled them were artists and creatives and 
all the people that also surround that, which is a brilliant other subculture of art, you know, it's it is not a coincidence that the historically in both New York and London and probably and elsewhere too that the stage doors of theatres open out onto the red light district. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think those things go hand in hand. And, you know, it's the same with Berlin. It's the red light district. There's all these areas where people are being creative and there's tattoo parlors and piercings and God knows what else. And I think that's amazing and brilliant. And and it and it probably feels like the most vibrant society to live in as opposed to all of us jammed into these identical you know, identikit sort of homes where we think we're actually achieving what we've always wanted and 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 possibly we're not achieving anything actually except our own early demise. I can never remember who, who it was a famous folk singer that did that song about little ticky tacky boxes. Yeah. Um, yeah, who did that? On the hill yeah. and, and go to the universe. I can't remember the name of it, but, but yeah, it, it was a wonderful and at times in history we seem to sort of veer away from it, but we've been stuck in mm. that for a little bit. But I, I think I think eternal optimist. I think that's kind of coming to mm. an end. Getting away from stage and mm. screen, the the other things that you do a lot, lot of as an you you both do voiceover, but you also do a podcast. I'm interested in 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 that sphere of how how you segued into those things and 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 how that part of your 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 life works. I I've always done voiceovers, and when I lived in New York, it was yeah. a um it was half my income. It was pivotal, and I found myself in a sort of strange group of English actors who all lived in New York and all did British commercials because it was ultimately cheaper to pay in a Brit in New York to do a voiceover than it was to hire somebody in London. Don't ask me the how that works. Right, yeah. Um, and it was... Uh, I began to realise that people were going, oh, this guy's got a good voice. I've never really thought... It. I mean, I, I trained my voice for the stage. And, and yeah. I remember I used to do this bit on you know the david Let did you remember if you heard of the david letterman show it was the late night show it's in new here. york and i used to that they worked so like you know it was a, a night it was every night was a brand new live show with a live audience and and their writers would come up with bits sometimes at the last minute half an hour before air they were going live and it was kind of exciting you'd get a phone call and be like can you come to the ed sullivan studio now and you'd go in there and somebody would throw a script at you and you'd do this little bit. And I just started being the voice of a sort of the British guy that they got in to pretend to be a BBC announcer or that sort of. Right. And yeah. um, it was a whole nother area of our industry that I had been closed to me before. And I was like, I love this. Um, and it continued when I came here to the UK. I mean, and funnily enough, even in you've been to our part of the world here. It's pretty rural and it's pretty isolated. And our little town nearest to where I am has a post-production company that's in an old converted church hall sort of thing. And um, mm. I work for them all the time, just doing little things. And interestingly, through one of the first things I did come COVID was try and, you know, to buy this uh, this microphone here and these headphones and yeah, try and convert yeah. my, my office into a... Uh, sound booth so that I could continue doing it because mm. again don't need to be in a sound booth to do that um, the podcast was different that was uh, your friend of mine Simon Rance and we bonded over our love of film and specifically our love of war movies and we hit upon this idea of doing 
a podcast that was an accurate timeline of the history of the Second World War, but told through film. So regardless of when the film was made, we examine films that uh, followed the story of the Second World War. So we've done our first season already and ended it at the yeah. Battle of the River Plate, a, a, a fab and kind of weird film. Um that sort of was the first British engagement in the war. And we also look at not just British and Hollywood films, you know, the the famous World War II blockbusters that we're, we know so well. Um, but we've looked at films from Poland, from China, um, from Scandinavia. Every country was involved in the Second World War, and it's amazing how many of them wanted to tell their story through film. Um, so we we found that basically there are hundreds and hundreds, we'll be doing this for decades, I think. <laughs> there are hundreds and hundreds of films, good and bad, that tell sometimes even the tiniest of stories and conflicts inside of the Second World War. So that's what we, that's what Simon and I do. And again, you see, it's just another, you know, both of us were sort of going spare and out of our mind. And we were like, well, podcasting seems to be the thing to do. Um, and this is creative, and I've really enjoyed editing it. You know, Simon, Simon's just yeah. the talent. He shows up and spouts his knowledge, of, his encyclopedic knowledge of film. And then, and then yeah. I sit for hours putting in sound cues and things. And I've really enjoyed that. It's been really fun. I, I, I found the same. I think I came to podcasting out of like, oh, I, need, I need this way of connecting with people and having conversations. And it's almost like it becomes... I need a good excuse rather than just zooming people. <laughs> so it, 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 and then it, it kind of grew and it was like really, it's really nice to explore all these different avenues and people's different perspectives on creativity. Mm. But as you say, the process of doing it, it's a fun thing to do. It's not like making a film, which it can be a bit of a, 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 a an ache in terms of pulling all the things together, but the craft of editing it and just playing around with it and, 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 you and I both experience having to edit Simon's laughing, laughing <laughs> out of things. And, and we, so we have a bit of a Twitter following now. And uh, infuriatingly, yeah. his giggle, his snigger has become quite a favorite of our fans. They do like his, his giggle. Yeah. He's got, those of you who ever listened to it, uh, he's got a very identifiable giggle, which is almost always present. <laughs> I, I will send. I will send you the video of our Christmas party where he laughed for an hour. <laughs> he couldn't stop laughing at something. So, Simon's one of those great pals who laughs at all your jokes, no matter how bad they are. It makes you feel quite funny. Dan, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you, and it's been great insights in into your world and the world of acting, and and, and some really good things to think about. And I think also just that celebration of mm. creativity. I think we've had a ni ni nice dialogue about kind of well, where do we go? And I hope you know, the demographic of, of this podcast is leans like under 30, under 25. And I really hope they get inspired to like go out, take over those spaces yeah. and, and reinvigorate because this, this is going to end and be There's ready part for of me, John, that wishes I was 25 again, because I think the enthusiasm to when this finally all ends, we're either going to have a, the world's biggest orgy or there is just going to be an orgiastic creative explosion of storytelling and in a way that is uh, probably hasn't been seen since the golden age. And I can't wait. I just wish I was young enough to get involved as much as I'd like to. <laughs> I, I, I fear in Norway it'll go like midsummer. <laughs> 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 
I'll end up in a bear, a, a bear costume or something. <laughs> Listen, I'll take it. I'll, anything. I'll dress like a bear. It yeah. all sounds good. Yeah. What's it? What does it pay? Thanks ever so much oh, for time, mate. It's been great. It's to been an absolute treat. I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Bet on myself and I proved it. I know the industry ruthless. I'm really a threat for nuisance. The Chevy is driving is ruthless. Think I'm the one and I proved it. I know the industry ruthless. Think we're seeing the movies. It really ain't dropping out the coolness.